gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, so, uh, very excited to do this. Uh, you, uh, I, I teased this uh, in the last episode that we were going to finally get the fair Jessica back on here uh, for new listeners because we've acquired quite a few um, in the time since the last time she was on. Um, uh, my wife, Jessica Gavora. Um, is uh, a ghostwriter and a speechwriter and an author. And, um, and she is also uh, um, my lovely bride. So um, uh, you read that nicely. Just got back. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, you, you, you wrote it so legibly. For me to read. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and um, I have been trying to get her, I would say, by almost a far, by a clear, by a, by a wide margin, uh, the single most common request I get for a guest, certainly a repeat guest is, is one, uh, Jessica Gavora. And, um, and she has resisted for years now to come back on, even though she's always says, Hey, sure. I'll come back on. So well, yeah. far first, from first me question. To... Okay. Why? Why are you so reluctant to come on? Well, you know, Jonah, look, as I said last time, <laughs> I think this is a ploy to talk about you more. There's that. But uh, I just, you know, you have very esteemed historians and economists and whatnot on your podcast, and I'm not that. But. I just had Egger on. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> But this is rank nepotism, right? So, it, no, it is rank pandering to what the market wants. <laughs> okay, as long as it's rank. Um, so, second question, um, and I have no prepared questions here, but we've talked a little bit about the, what we're going to do here today. Um, um, and it's it, it, it's weird for me to do this because there's literally no other human being in the world who I talk to more than you. So to have, do a podcast with you is just feels yeah, very, very that's strange. very weird. And I, yeah. I, I get a little giggly. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the second question I have, which is what really most of our listeners want to know, is how awesome is it being married? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you do this last time? I think you're re repeating. I yeah. think I did. But, you know, but again, we got new listeners. So I got to, you know, you know, and maybe, maybe your answers change. <laughs> well, you know, Jonah just got over. Um, a bout of sickness. So, and he's pretty, pretty trying when he's sick, but now you're just fantastic. <laughs> All right. So let's, uh, uh, enough about, uh, enough about me. What do you think of me? No, um, <laughs> uh, let's, let's actually get into this. Um, so the last thing that you, the last book project that you worked on, you worked with, um, Betsy DeVos on her book about, uh, uh, her time in the White House and um, um, and school choice stuff. Yeah. Um, how was that experience? Well, you know, there, if you kind of didn't know it going in, I definitely knew it coming out that this is the most, um, you know, purposefully and systematically reviled, you know, almost person in American politics. She has really 
taken a lot of incoming. And I unfairly, and I love these kinds of clients because she's just, you know, she still stands up and does the job. And um, I just think that that's, that's very admirable. And she's the, she's the very definition of FU money, right? I mean, she does not need to take on all that. That's right. She does not, she did not need to be education secretary, but she's devoted literally her entire life to being education secretary. So I found myself, you know, very charmed by her and Dick DeVos and their whole community in West Michigan, um, which they're very close to. And, um, and I enjoyed working with them more than I honestly thought I would. And I have to say that, you know, I started hearing from Betsy over a year ago about this book project that she, and it was a book that says that this is a unique time in education history. It's a really unique opportunity for education choice and for innovation in, in, in schools and choice and how the, you know, COVID had been so, has been so bad for education and it's just given us this moment that, that Glenn Youngkin really outlined very well in his campaign that, you know, parents should have a right to say and choose and, you know, choose their children's education. And Betsy saw this coming a year before anybody did. And um, so I, I really recommend this book. It's called Hostages No More. It's based on an actual quote by Horace Mann. Um, that was, he said, basically, when parents give us their children, they're giving us hostages to their cause. <laughs> he really said this. And it's it's very true. And I know a lot of parents awoken, have awoken to that during COVID. So, uh, look, I think it's a great book. Um, I think people are scared off by Betsy and her name. And um, it's unfortunate because it was really enjoyable working with her. And she really nailed it in terms of education and what's what's going on and what the country's ripe for i think um so like it's i think it's kind of fascinating um i'll talk to groups of young politically engaged people um and as you well know quite often very old politically engaged people (laughs) (laughs) and uh um sometimes in the caribbean and um and um, it's a selection bias thing, right? I mean, they're interested in what I have to say because they're there. You know, I mean, they're there because they're interested in what I have to say. So like, sure. but then I will drop that, oh, my wife's a ghostwriter and a speechwriter or whatever. And then they just all start asking questions about that stuff. And um, people are kind of fascinated by ghostwriters, um, which is yeah. kind of weird since I have, you know, my mom was a ghostwriter. I know. <laughs> you were a ghostwriter. David French's wife is a ghostwriter. Like, it's like, it's a weird that I've just ended up being surrounded by. It's true. So why don't you just tell people a little bit about how that works? Like, what's the process? How do you, how do you get into it? Why do you get into it? Um, Why do you want to write in somebody else's voice? Yeah. So I don't think it's a, an accident that the three people you just mentioned are women. I think this is a I don't want to be sexist here, but it's a good job for women. You have to get inside somebody else's head, right? And put yourself in their shoes and write for them. And that's not something that a lot of men are suited for. Um, A lot of women aren't suited for it, but I think maybe more so than men. You could never do this. No. Every time I ask you for a, a, you know, 
a recommendation for a speech or something, you spout off something wildly controversial that <laughs> no politician <laughs> will ever say. And it, um, but no, I'm serious. Um, so I just wanted to get paid for writing. And this is the way that I can get paid for writing. Now, I would rather write speeches than ghost write books. Um, but you basically have to be in government or running for government. Um, and right now that's difficult for me. So I just wanted to write and the money in this can be good. So definitely I, you know, I'm working on a book of my own. I would love to have it published, not no less, you know, make any money off it. So these are all problems you don't have. Yeah. <laughs> um, you are my better half. So like your problems are my problems, <laughs> yeah. darling. But um, uh, we'll get to the your current book project in a second. But um, so like you don't have to name names um, and we should just tell people you've worked, you've, you've worked on books, right? I mean, we're not supposed to say that you've written books for various people, but collaborated. You've, on, you've collaborated. That's the word I was looking for. You've collaborated on books. Sometimes the collaboration was actually collaborative. And sometimes less so, I think it's fair to say. Precisely. You were also uh, John Ashcroft's chief speechwriter um, when he was attorney general. Yes. Um, I don't know if we talked about this last time, but um, why don't you just sort of tell people what it was? Because like, it was very strange. You know, we came back from our, 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 our wonderful honeymoon and I went to uh, your sister's house in the Pacific Northwest to pick up Cosmo, the greatest dog who ever lived and wherever will live. And, um, and you had to fly straight back home to DC to, uh, start your job at the justice department. And like two days later, it was nine 11. So why don't you just sort of yeah. tell people a little bit about that? No, I got back on Sunday. Nine 11 was Tuesday, I believe. Um, I had already worked at justice That's true. Since, sorry, about, since about Memorial day. And, yeah. um, I didn't know John Ashcroft. Um, I really didn't know anybody around him. Um, and, you know, Ashcroft had had this very bruising confirmation. And he was kind of politically neutered by the president, I have to say. Um, and he yet just, shockingly sexy. <laughs> he, he just, you know, he couldn't get out there and be controversial because he'd kind of had this rough confirmation and, you know, they didn't want any of this. And he lost his Senate race in a really shabby way, right? I mean, yeah. his opponent died in a plane crash. And so and his, his wife, wife, the wife ran. was put on the ballot like 10 days before yeah. the yeah. election. Something yeah, like and he, you know, he's a, one of these polarizing figures too. And different guy, absolutely. But at, so at first, the first three months I was working on this, I was thinking, you know, this is kind of boring. You know, this, he can't really say anything. And it's all these kind of speeches to cops and their trade associations and U.S. attorneys. And um, I did work a little bit with um, Bob Mueller, um, which was cool. He was, he, he became the director of the FBI right that time. But I was thinking, you know, this is really not that fun. And then 9-11 happened and it just completely transformed this job. And we were, um, I was, you know, working on important kind of, you know, historical speeches um with the with the attorney general and he was working on really important you know and we were kind of making the transition at the justice department from from a a, a crime-based approach to terrorism to a you know a preventative 
approach, which is very controversial. And, um, but we did, you know, I think they made the, the wise decision that it wasn't really worth prosecuting crimes of terrorism after they occurred, that we needed to do more than that. And so we had the Patriot Act and all that stuff. And then we started um, prosecuting, you know, Americans like John Walker Lind, who had been involved in terrorism. It was very hard. I was the only speechwriter for a long time and, you know, for all his press conferences and all his speeches. So it was a lot of work, but it was, and so I look back on it, I think with, you know, gauzy lenses, but it was really important and ultimately enjoyable. I was pissed on your behalf because normally chief speechwriter is like this sort of sinecure kind of position where you have a team. Like I remember like whoever the department, the secretary of agriculture was back then had like six speechwriters. And, and so what's his name? You know, Wisconsin. No, anyway, go ahead. Vilsack or something. Anyway, Ashcroft comes in and uh, gets rid of the chef. Yes. Very thrifty guy. Normal cabinet secretaries provide lunch for staff and stuff. And he protected the taxpayers by providing as much water as you could drink <laughs> with ice. Um, and then didn't hire any other speechwriters so that you couldn't farm out anything to anybody. And yeah. um, you were working very hard. Yeah. Question I have for you though is again, in uh, all things being equal, what do you think the most boring cabinet secretary to write speeches for would be? Wow. This was the question, by the way, when I said this morning, I was about to ask you this. I said, what do you think the most? And then I said, well, I'll save it for the podcast. So this is my only planned question. <laughs> you, you want me to take the bullet on this? Because um, if I said ag, which I might believe, you know. There, then all the farmers will hate there, you. Yeah, and there are a lot of people that hang on <laughs> his her her words. Um, transportation. Yeah, Buttigieg is what put it in mind. I saw him, yeah. on, saw him on TV. This yeah, yeah, that would be tough. Although I think still more interesting than agriculture or um, labor, you know? At least agriculture, you could talk about markets and trade and stuff. Well, or yeah. subverting them, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I mean, I was lucky. Uh, Justice was a great speechwriting position. Um, I would say second only to state, right? Or defense, possibly, yeah. Well, you also worked for Nikki Haley at the UN, right? So, which is sort of like state. yes. Yeah. And that was the ultimate speech writing experience. I mean, all the UN is is talking. Um, and Nikki was up for a fight and we we gave it to him. Um, I really, really enjoyed that job and working for her and um, writing, you know, just screeds. It was it was really wonderful. It was the first time in my life that the I could write something that I really from my gut that I really felt and not have it completely rejected by a, a principal, just kind of tweaked. And, um, you know, she was fantastic anti-communist, you know, fantastic pro-democracy secretary uh, or ambassador to the UN. I, I enjoyed that job a great deal. Um, but we should just sort of be clear. So people, I'm sure people are wondering about this. Um, I would often joke, in front of other people around you about how my wife works for the Trump administration. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, which was technically true. Um, and you did not necessarily like that. I literally never saw it that way. I mean, I look, I worked <laughs> with Nikki on her first book. 
So I knew her. And then I worked on her second book. So to me, I had a personal relationship with her. And it was, I didn't think a thing about Trump. Who you're not a particular fan of. That's Who I'm not a fan of. But yeah, wasn't Matt Schlapp trying to like, didn't you guys get into a little spat about how I had joined the Trump train and, you know, nobody was immune to the charms of the... Some, there was something like yeah. that, yeah. And I, I couldn't fully engage because I didn't want to get you in trouble. Yeah, yeah. You know, because yeah. um, stuff rolls downhill. Well, it most definitely was that. And Nikki was, she was no, you know... I mean, at least for what I could see and what she said, she she was much more hard on the Russians than Trump ever was. She was she was no suck up, you know. Um, she was kind of doing her own thing. She was she was doing a lot of a you know in defiance of um, Tillerson, the Secretary of State, who is technically kind of her boss, even though she was in the cabinet. So I, I found her very um, very admirable in that position. How do you think she's handled things since? Well, look, I um, immediately after getting out of the UN, I worked with her on her second book, which I think came out really well and actually sold, I think, pretty well. We, we worked on walking a very fine line between being anti-Trump and pro-Trump, right? And trying to keep her in this wonderful position that she had survived her time in the Trump administration with, which was, you know, the Trumpers didn't hate her. The anti-Trumpers didn't hate her. She was in a very refined, very air. And I knew it couldn't hold, right? She had to come down down one way or the other because nobody allows in this current day and age you to be in the middle, right? And and she went down the side, on the side a little too far uh, in kind of sport, support of, of the present, uh, president for my tastes. I just... I was kind of shocked and disappointed um, but some of the things she said um, and some of the things she took back that she said. And uh, so I, I really, I really like her. I really, um, I, I think it's really unfortunate. It's, it's that I, that we haven't been able to kind of continue to work together because I liked her a lot. And I um, mind, you know, we could talk about forever about why people have done this in the era of Trump. But, you know, it comes down to all the principles, you know, putting aside all the principles I believe that she held and just thinking in terms of power, right? What was the quickest way to power? Yeah, so we've talked about this a little bit. I mean, you bring up Matt Schlapp. Matt Schlapp is not a mystery about why he took the positions he took. He made millions of dollars taking oh, the posi- yeah. <laughs> yeah. positions he took. Um, I mean, this is that's always been one of the, most sotto voce things about CPAC is that the president of CPAC is almost always an incredibly well-connected lobbyist. (laughs) Um, and they sell all sorts of, they, 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 they sell on the back end a lot at CPAC. If you were like a serious lefty Marxist type, you would consider the best proof of the corruption of conservatism is really just influence peddling and, 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 and cat and money grubbing. You, you would look at the way CPAC is done, but yeah, I don't think conservatives are alone in that though. Right. No, 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 absolutely not. There's a lot of, so it's all over the place. It's just, yeah. you know, and there are lots of perfectly good, decent people who attend CPAC. Um, but, uh, 
probably fewer than there used to be. But uh, yeah. um, anyway, but no, but my point is uh, what I was going to get at is we've talked about obviously quite a bit because you take more than a passing interest in my career and I take more than a passing interest in yours. Um, I would generally say that there are no two people who are more interested in somebody else's career than <laughs> yours and mine. Uh, and um, although Steve is kind of interested in, in how things go for me. Uh, the Trump years have been hard, right? I mean, there are a bunch of people that we considered really good friends that I, not many of them are, are the are, are the friendships over. Yeah. But you also just don't want to talk to them because yeah. you don't want this stuff to come up. Yeah. You know, um, how do you see it? It's strained. And I, the whole experience, people that I knew when I was younger, I was involved with the um, Claremont Institution, um, you know, these guys were talking about Lincoln and the wisdom of the founders. And it was all statesmanship. Statesmanship. Yes, it was all, it was all a revelation and wonderful, wonderful. You know, you just kind of fall in love with the country and its founding um, documents over the course of this thing. And, and then, you know, there, then comes Trump and people whose people's principles are going, it seems to me to be out the window. And it made me feel in the end, and, and you know this, but like, like I was just naive and a chump, you know, to believe that, that this country, that people understand and support the fact that this country believes in something besides power and that the people who run this country believe in something besides power. And I just think this has been very, very disheartening. The friends, yes, but the but the politicians that have gone along, like you said, you talk to these guys, these guys who say when you're alone off camera, what a, you know, dangerous douchebag this guy is. And then when, I'm sorry, can I say that? Yeah. On, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, when the camera's on, they're licking his feet. And it's really, really disheartening. It makes me wonder if you can continue. I, I would love to get out of political writing, actually. So what is, I mean, we haven't talked about this in a while. What is your, your theory? Do you think people were, do you think the Trump era revealed who a lot of people really were? Or do you think the Trump era changed all these people? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I think in some cases it was revealing, but I think in some cases, I won't say who these people are, but I do think, it changed them. It, it made them more tribal. You know, they, they took positions that I think they didn't think were unprincipled. I think they thought were principled, but they were, you know, infected with this tribalism and this, if you, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, you're evil, I'm good kind of dynamic at work in our politics today. And, and look, we used to, I mean, I grew up, we grew up in this movement being the ones who could rail against the liberal media, right? And we were the ones that were getting the short end of the stick, you know, from, from the elites. And, and Trump has completely, he's just completely sacrificed that. It's just, it's gone. How do you, how do you stand up like I did for a lot of my career and argued about Title IX and about how it was unfair to men in athletics? You know, how do you stand up after Donald Trump and say, we really care about fairness and about women in athletics, but this is wrong the way this law is being applied. It, all that credibility is gone. 
I mean, it's going to take a long time to rebuild. And, um, yeah, that's sad. Yeah, I mean, I agree it's a case-by-case thing. Like, I mean, the archetypal one is is Rudy Giuliani. I don't think Rudy Giuliani was who he... The guy Rudy Giuliani is today is different than the guy, you know, 20 years ago. And yeah. I'm less sure about Devin Nunes. You know, I'm less... There are some people, like, maybe it was revealed. Um, I have a hard time believing... You know, I was talking to somebody last night at CNN about how um, this lawyer friend of theirs who's screaming liberal in Texas knew, uh, um, what's her name? Um, Powell. What's her first name? The, the crazy, Sydney Powell. And they were like, she's great. She's competent. She's super, super smart, sharp. And, um, and now, you know, she, yeah. she's a nutter. And so, you know, and, and Flynn was always sort of weird, but like there are people who particularly the sort of, Gen X men who do seem to have legitimately changed and got, you know, kind of, I hate the phrase red pilled, but have just gone. Yeah. Well, I think getting calls from the president, you know, 11 o'clock at night, a lot changes somebody, you know, there are some commentators that we know and love that we know started having quote unquote relationships with the president after they started sucking up to them on television. And that's that's going to get to people getting you know called by the president and told how wonderful you are, um, and how right you are. But yeah, but what um, cheap dates? I mean, like, <laughs> I agree. I, mean, I agree. It's it's the worst reflection on this this town, as they say that I, that I've ever ever seen. And um, I mean, I don't want this to be this huge downer, but this this whole experience has been uh, just a real bonfire of my beliefs and principles and idealism uh, for this country. Well, we used to have the idea of just quitting all this and opening a sandwich shop. Um. (laughs) I know. know. (laughs) Big salads and sandwiches, man. That's it. So uh, let's, um, let's segue. You're currently, so we we should tell the listeners, we just got back from Istanbul and in London um, and, but you were already in Europe because you're researching, um, a book that's hopefully commercial, but yeah. really, but primarily sort of a labor of love and sort of yeah filial obligation and something really for my family. You know, they've really been encouraging me to do it. Um, and it's, it's my dad and you've, you've told his story before, um, and, and you tell it better than I do, but you know, he, he escaped communism in 1948, um, in, um, from Czechoslovakia, from the Slovakia side, um, when he was 16 years old and, um, had to, you know, run away in the middle of the night without telling his family and swam across the Danube to Austria and finished high school in a, in a refugee camp in Germany. And then, you know, got to the States in fifth. D1 and went and met my mom at um, Colorado State University and then went to the University of Chicago and, and studied economics with Milton Friedman. So he's got a, and then went to Alaska right, and right. started a business. So he, I think, you know, he's got a, a great story and he was a remarkable 
man. So, but the problem is, you know, he didn't like to talk about his past. I, I think, as you know, maybe he talked to you about it more. No, than he no, did. It was me, very but, hard to get him to talk about that. Yeah, stuff. and so, and I, and I kind of had it in my mind that I would want to do this someday. But I thought it was, it was kind of ghoulish to try to press him in the last years of his life, you know, to talk about it. Yeah, I had the same problem with my mom. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. It's just you're going to die soon, so why don't you give it all up? And it is just. And I, I couldn't do it. So now he's gone. And, and I'm, I'm sure there will be many books written about your mother too. But now my dad is gone. And, um, you know, a lot of this, this, especially this flight of his from Slovakia um, is, you know, he didn't tell anybody. So I'm having to kind of research it. I, I got some help. I, I wrote the the archives of the the state um, secret police in Czechoslovakia, and they have a, I think it's called the Memory Project. It's really wonderful. They um, released all these files, and they're really great. They will really help you. You send them a name and a date of birth, and they 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 pulled up file, files on my dad. So my last trip was going to their offices in Bratislava and in um, Prague to get these files. And, and some of it, some of it is really revealing, uh, particularly, I think some of the memos that they had gathered from, you know, citizens, informers, um, talking about things. And I got a little insight to what my dad did in the, in the uh, refugee camps in Germany, but that's still a real black box, which is unfortunate. Um, but didn't one of the informers say that he was the head of like the young Democrat league yeah, or something? Yeah. They, one of these, one of these memos, and this would have been written like, you know, 50, 49, 50. Um, and dad was safely in Germany, but there was somebody giving up all of the people who were politically active in this camp in Ludwigsburg. I think there were a lot of Czechs and Slovaks in this camp. And my dad was on this list as the president of like the young Democrats in the camp, which fills my heart, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> confirms a lot for me. Uh, I mean, it's not confirmation. It makes a lot of sense to me that, that he was that. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, there were little things like that. I found out some things from my cousins. We talked about the 68 um, invasion after the Prague Spring liberalizations, the six, the Russian tanks coming in to Slovakia in 68. And they have my, some of my cousins have good memories of that. And there's some decent stories there, but that doesn't really, um, my dad was safely in Alaska at that point. So, um, I wanted to just, because it's my, one of my favorite stories and it's, I'm sure it has gotten embellished over the years. Um, uh, your dad was a very, he was, he was, he was a peculiar duck, as my dad would say, who was also a peculiar duck. Yes. Um, and very different kinds of ducks, though. But and, they still uh, like the same food. Yeah. They, like, they very much like the same food. Um, your dad liked to shoot actual ducks more than my dad That's did. That's true. Um, and he made the boys, uh, he made it a contest to see who could bite on the first piece of duck shot. <laughs> Um, it's all the, it's all the lead for. poisoning. It yeah. explains my brothers. Yeah. yeah, it does explain why <laughs> the girls in your family are a standard deviation smarter than the boys. <laughs> but um, um, no, my favorite story, and 
again, it's a family story, so I'm sure it's um, you know, it, it, it's a family story. So I was fishing with your dad and your brother Danny, and um, um, and your your and a couple other people, and um, uh, and your dad had gone to bed, and somehow over you know whiskey or whatever, uh the subject of being getting like rough water and getting seasick and, or I guess we were talking about taking their boat up from Seattle to the, to, to Fairbanks and it went through some choppy water. And I asked about, did you guys get seasick or whatever? And Danny just looks at me like, well, you know, my dad doesn't get seasick. And I was, but he said in a way, like I should know that. You know? <laughs> and I was like, huh? And Dan could tell I didn't know what he was talking about. And he says, well, you know the story about why my dad doesn't get seasick. And I was like, no, this is not something Jess told me. And, um, you know, expecting some fairly boring thing about an inner ear, you know, condition that made him immune to seasickness. Instead, uh, the, 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 the story is your dad was on the UN refugee ship and he was working as like a stevedore or crewman yeah, of some his kind. his passage of from Germany to America, right. yeah. And, um, and they were going through the North Atlantic and a really bad storm was coming like really bad. And the captain realized how bad it was going to be. So he ordered all non-essential crew and all the passengers in, or I guess all the passengers into the, the cafeteria or something, the lowest cargo. Stay hold. below decks. Yeah. yeah. To stay below decks. And, but he knew that when such choppy water, people would panic and get claustrophobic and start barfing and start clamoring for air. And so he assigned your dad the job of standing on the deck chained to the railing <laughs> with a billy club. And he stood at the stop at the top of one set of stairs to the, to the deck. And his job was to crack the heads of anybody who tried to get up on deck and kick them back down the stairs to save their lives because yes. they would get washed over. And he spent all night getting knocked off the boat and having to climb back yeah. up and get on the thing. And so Danny goes, and that's why my dad doesn't get seasick. <laughs> <laughs> like that was inoculating. Yeah. I, um, no, it is. It's one of those, I mean, it's one of those stories that he's kind of let, he let slip in small amounts. Um, and it said a lot about the guy. He was, he was very tough. And, you know, he wasn't. No, he had a lot to brag about and he almost never bragged. No, I mean, he, I, and you know, he wouldn't. You had to he, pry he just stuff wouldn't. out of him. He wouldn't. And, and coming to Washington, I've said this before to you, or even on this podcast, it, it made me so aware of what a great man he is. I had, he set a benchmark for me um, that just was consistently not met in this town. <laughs> These people that are supposed to be our leaders, you know, and my dad was such, such a better human being. And I, as I think your dad was too, um, just smarter and with more integrity, but anyway, I'm doing it again. One of the reasons you let slip this morning about why you finally authorized your agents to okay your appearance on this <laughs> podcast is that uh, um, you wanted to ask um, listeners yeah, for what? Yeah, well, I mean, look, I, like I said, this is this, this black box is my dad's flight from Slovakia. And, and this was late, you know, the war was over. It was 48. It was about five months after the communists took over in um, Czechoslovakia. 
And um, then he went to he went to Austria, and there are there are some good records. I think mostly um, kept by um, Jewish people about refugees, and they do have a record of him being denied refugee status in Austria. But I know he eventually gained it in Germany. So this whole thing, this whole flight, you know, Radio Free Europe's first broadcast was into Czechoslovakia. Did you know that? It was like in, it was only, it was in 50 or 49 or something, but it's kind of where this, a lot of this journey, this po- this Cold War stuff began. And um, so I'm trying to fill in some of those blanks, like, you know, so what were the camps, the refugee camps like? What was the, how hard was it to get to the States? All this stuff. And especially for Czechs and Slovaks. And so other people that might have that, that experience or had obviously had relatives that had that experience, I would, um, I would love to hear from, and God forbid out if somebody's out there and it's the guy that my dad, you know, stole away that night with in Bratislava to cross the river. His name is lost to history, but you know, if he's out there, if he's somebody's grandfather, I'd love to hear from them. But no, seriously, I, you know, because I think it's a bigger, there's a bigger story here. I want to keep my book I'm not trying to write a work of history. You know, it's going to be about my dad, but there are just some holes there I kind of need to fill and it would be good to fill it with real stories. There's a very old rule. Um, you know, the biggest blunder is don't get into a land war in Southeast Asia. The second biggest blunder is don't give away your wife's email address on a podcast. <laughs> so if anybody has anything or wants to reach out to Jess, why don't you send the email to me at Jonah at the dispatch.com and uh, I will forward it or deal with it accordingly. Yeah, it would be greatly appreciated. Um, and that way all the um, untoward and tawdry things will get filtered before they reach you. I'm not sure we need to talk about this very much, but like, you know, my mom just passed. Um, about six weeks ago, um, I've tried not to keep revisiting the subject on here. Um, but, uh, since this is sort of the, where we are in this, this conversation, um, I think some listeners might want to know what you thought it was like to have Lucienne Goldberg (laughs) as my, as your mother-in-law. Oh my God. It was a trip. Um, well, we would go to New York you know, when we were dating, when back when she used to cook for us. And, um, you know, we would have Thanksgiving with uh, Matt Drudge. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just, and I know you told a story about coming home and who was it was sleeping on your couch? That guy from the OJ? Oh, Mark Furman? Mark Furman, yeah. yeah, 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 I, mean, that's yeah. The, I think that's the kind of house um, she had. And um, she was just loving that era. Um, uh, she's a trouble, she was a troublemaker uh, and she loved, she loved that time. Um, but you know, it's funny cause I was just talking to Lucy, our daughter yesterday about, she said she was talking to some kid and who was like, Oh my God, you're Lucy Ann Goldberg's granddaughter. This kid who didn't know who you were, but mm-hmm. knew that she, and, and it was like, wow, how did you know that? And, and I, so I started to talk to Lucy and of course this kid knew, about her because of the Clinton stuff. And I started to talk to her about uh, the other things she did, which uh, to me, you know, she was an admirable, smart, funny anti-feminist. 
um, in the best possible, you know, way of the world word. Um, she was a ghostwriter. She, she represented all kinds of crazy, of prominent people. <laughs> well, both, both crazy a, and prominent people. As a, yeah. as a book agent. And I mean, you can talk about that more, but I just think that's the part of her history that I really want Lucy to know more about. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny when, um, the, when we first got married and, or first got engaged, I can't remember which, uh, like the one thing that your mom refused to believe was that my mom could cook. That <laughs> <laughs> Your mom could cook. She was a great cook yeah. that she, and she stopped the instant we got married. Pretty much. I mean, literally yeah. that first Thanksgiving, I was, I don't know, six, seven months pregnant and I cooked Thanksgiving, cooked and cooked. Um, and it was fun, but she, she was clear. She was done cooking um, when you got married. Um, well, she used to make Yorkshire pudding. Remember? Oh yeah, no, man. Good stuff. It's good. All right. Let's move on to the rank punditry phase of, of this. <laughs> okay. well, we, we, we can, we can, you know, we got to. No, I know. I look, or we can talk about the dogs. So either um, way. Well, let's talk about Istanbul for two seconds. Um, yeah. like something neither of us knew about Istanbul. Um, even though I had been there before, but I had, you know, 30 years ago, but, um, the city is just drenched in cats and dogs. Yes. yes. <laughs> and yeah, more cats, it seems. Uh, but the dogs are there sitting by themselves in the, you know, grassy spaces of the public parks. Um, very chill, you know, not begging. There's, they feed these animals, which is a good thing. Um, I think individuals and possibly the state. And I think they, they also construct shelter for them, but they allow them to remain <laughs> and they, and they, um, they vaccinate them against rabies, but they allow them to remain strays, which is really interesting. Yeah. I was reading up on it. It's a weird cultural compromise. I mean, the cat thing is a little different, but like dogs in Islam are unclean. So there was this cultural headwind against having them as pets in your, in your home. Yeah. But Istanbul has this very long tradition of feeding dogs that are quote technically strays. Um, um, so like there were some just giant dogs, giant like dogs, German shepherds, Anatolian shepherd type dogs. And, um, and like some of them would roll over and let tourists rub their bellies. Yeah. And it was the only thing which you noticed first, which I, I, I want to get the dog lady back on here. Um, that was shocking was there was very little sense that they had packs yeah. Sometimes you'd see them in twos, maybe threes, but that was it. And that was rare. And generally there was like solitary, which is not normal for dogs. But yeah, um, well, it is one, it is interesting why they are all, all the ones I saw were alone. I never saw three dogs together. Um, unlike the cats, I think they must be, you know, uh, practicing some kind of birth control for the dogs. It doesn't seem like they are for the cats. There no. are and, yeah, and then, cats. and so just to be clear, People leave out lots of food for these cats. Oh, they do. So, I mean, they, yeah. they really do take care of these animals. It's not like you see these sad, skinny animals. You don't. They're all, yeah. they're all well-fed. And, and before I get an angry letter from Kristen Soltis-Anderson, um, we should be clear <laughs> that this is not the case in the rest of Turkey. And like, yeah. for listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, Kristen Soltis-Anderson Soltis has a wonderful golden retriever named Wally. 
who was a rescue from Turkey, but from the Anatolian parts of Turkey, um, because monsters have created a tradition or a fad of giving away golden retriever puppies at parties. And then once they get big, they put them out on the street and um, golden retrievers are not well suited <laughs> to be street dogs. <laughs> um, yeah. You, you can only go so far going up to every human saying, hello, I think I love you. <laughs> um, yeah. So there was a whole effort to, to rescue these dogs, right? And Kirsten got, got one of them, an older guy, yeah. Wally, who'd been around the block a few times. Seen um, some things. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, we didn't see that. No. Yeah, I didn't see one German or uh, one uh, oh. golden that I, I saw a group of them once, but I think it was a play group in yeah. Istanbul. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't let me, I saw some kittens. I really wanted to bring one home, but you wouldn't let me do that. So I think I was right. Um, <laughs> there are, if we have to get a kitten, there are kittens in need. They're American. Make American kittens great again. <laughs> All right. So rank punditry time. Okay. Um, right now, like you're the only person in this conversation who's worked on a presidential campaign. Um, uh, a short, short-lived presidential yeah. campaign. Um, for a good and honorable man, Lamar Alexander. Um, uh, I was wooing you during that period. Um, don't make that face. <laughs> and, um, uh, but um, uh, what is your take on the field? I mean, you're perfectly qualified to talk about this stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, look, my problem is I, I understand politically that American voters can't be shamed for voting. Donald Trump, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, no, no politician can go, you idiots, you brought this guy to power. Um, Pundits can do that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. But so, I mean, I understand that politically, but that runs up against my burning desire to have a reckoning Mm. for this guy, not just because I loathe him and I have a a sense of personal vengeance, really not just because of that, but because the, the need to, re- to, 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 to correct the record on, in terms of what conservatives stand for, what this country stands for, how this guy was a violation of all those things. I mean, I really believe it's important, you know, for history, for that, that reckoning to occur. At the same time, I understand politically, uh, on the Republican side, it really can't, right? So you, so you run up against um, this guy and... Florida DeSantis, who supposedly, you know, he's Trump in style, but not in substance, right? And uh, I, I, I dislike that because, you know, it's kind of a continuation of a lot of unhealthy trends. Uh, but uh, I don't know. He seems like he's smart. Mm-hmm. And generally, somebody who's ahead right now is never going to be ahead, you know, later in the race. But this guy... Seems like he's smart. And I just can't see who else. There are people I'd love to see out there as we both wrote in for president in 16 and 20. Um, no, I made the mistake of voting for Evan McMullen in, in 16. Oh, did you? Yeah, which I really regret. 
but in 20, I wrote in Mitch Daniels. Yeah. Mitch Daniels, my God, um, would be a savior. Uh, you know, I love Doug Ducey, uh, in Arizona. I don't know, you know, these guys aren't running, but, um, it's kind of hard to get around this Ron DeSantis thing because he does this kind of, Oh, this whole Trump thing never happened. You know, Mm -hmm. he plays on the same grievances, but we don't have to really acknowledge that we made a mistake back then and we could just move forward and rail against, you know, political correctness and all that stuff. Yeah. So I I think your point about, how the guy who's at head at this point is almost never the one who gets the nomination yeah. still applies here. I'm not saying it's lots of precedents have been violated in the last 20 years. Um, so, I mean, I'm not saying he can't get the nomination, I, I, you know, but I just, I kind of feel like it is far less obvious that he will get the nomination, but if forcing Trump out of running requires everyone to talk like DeSantis will get the nomination, then uh, you know, I mean, I'm not going to lie, but like it doesn't bother me that much. Yeah. I think Trump is a much more spent force than that. I don't think that that's necessary. Honestly. Um, I just think he's, he's not getting the attention that he craves. He's not putting, he doesn't want to put in effort. He wants people to come to him. Right. He doesn't want to go to the people. And, and he, and the people aren't coming to him. So I just think this thing is blessedly over and yet somehow unsatisfactory. Yeah. Well, we'd be, 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 be somewhat of good cheer. I mean, I think the historical reckoning is going to happen. I mean, like it is very, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big opponent of the idea of the right side of history yeah. in terms of like a teleology kind of thing or a cold material determinism or anything like that. But just as a matter of sort of like common sense and good and bad, good and bad, it seems. But it just seems obvious to me that he is going to be thought of very poorly by historians. Um, and like I know there are these some somewhat serious and a lot of crazy people who have convinced themselves that history is going to have a reevaluation. I'm sure Conrad Black is telling people oh, history is going to be much kinder to Trump, blah, 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 blah. They might yeah. be kinder to tr- some of Trump's policies. I think that's probably true. I mean, like remain in Mexico as of right now looks like a really good policy. Um, and some of that kind of stuff. Yeah, but remain in Mexico is not going to live beyond too far beyond Trump. No, 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 no. I, I, I agree. But my point is, is like Trump, the man, the further you get away from his presidency, the freer people are to describe him. Yeah. Honestly. And I just, you have to depart from the facts. You have to depart so far from the facts to write a positive appraisal of Trump's character and his <laughs> presidency. That I just, I, I think over the long haul, it's, it's going to be, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot like Nixon, right? I mean, and I agree with you. It's very frustrating, but you know, Reagan didn't go around saying, you know, all you diehard Nixon supporters are fools. He just said, you know, let's move forward and yeah, and but with a with a positive message and an uplifting message about this country and I, who's got that out there? You know, I mean, really, yeah, that's gone. I mean, but no, uh, this morning in the post, Hugh Hewitt writes that the way out for Trump might be something he calls the Agnew solution, which, as far as I could tell, would be him bribing people promise- with paper bags full of money. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, evidently, I don't remember this, but Agnew got a deal at the end. He, in, ter- in exchange for his resignation, the feds declined to prosecute him and they, they, they had him on some tax stuff. Mm-hmm. And Hewitt is saying, you know, I guess it would be in exchange for Trump's promise not to run again or something that the feds could, um, or, you know, give him, not prosecute him for some of these things. I, I might be butchering this because I know I don't think Hugh thinks a lot of these so-called crimes are prosecutable. But, um, but when that, I'm just saying when that happens, you know, this guy, you know, we don't have to be thinking about, you know, allowing his, imi- you know, half, having to settle for an imitator for our next nominee. I really, really don't believe that. I think he is a spent force. Well, I, I, I hope you're right. I'm not sure. The problem is just the, the game theory of how the Republican primaries work. And you don't, you don't need a majority of the party. You just need a significant plurality plurality. And um, he could end up being the nominee. I think his odds of being the next president are very, 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 very low. So let's, let's um, change gears a little bit. Um, I mean, unless you have something, unless you have burning passion about Joe Biden that you want (laughs) to unburden yourself of. No, it's strange because he arouses passion in so many people. (laughs) I'd say for the last 10 years, I keep saying, you know, it'd be a great piece for you to write. And some piece about title nine. And usually it's sort of like, I'll, 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 I'll sanitize it. Um, you stupid schmucks. I was right. Um, (laughs) and, um, but now title nine, you know, like the, the men's sports part of title nine seems to be like a non-issue now. Yeah. So they won. I mean, that was the whole point of my book is that sports is over. Um, they've kind of instituted this quota regime under the law. Um, in sports. So they had to move on. You don't mean that sports is over. Like we don't have sports anymore. You mean, no, I like- mean as an issue for the, for title nine advocates, it's mm-hmm. women's participation in college. I mean, in, in, in getting graduate degrees and stuff. I mean, and women out do men a lot of education. It's just harder and harder for them to make this argument that, that women are victims, um, which is at the core of their, their reasoning. Um, but there are, you know, I mean, I, I, God knows I didn't foresee these transgender issues and things like that being existing or being litigated under Title IX. And that has gotten us back into the sports realm, mm-hmm. but in a very circular <laughs> kind of way. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I just wanted to get out of Title IX. I, I, I enjoy taking positions and I enjoy people who are unafraid, but I was kind of dumb. I think I was young and I got into this issue and I wrote this book and I didn't kind of realize how it would affect my reputation in polite Washington, you know, even among Republicans. Mm -hmm. Um, and it kind of put me out there, but I don't, I don't regret a word of it, but you know, I, I kind of feel like I did my work on title nine. Yeah, I have this. I think I can't remember if I've talked about this on here. I'm sure I've talked about it with you. Um, part of my theory, first of all, the transgender thing is pings parts of people's brains in ways that are really powerful yes. and really disturbing. And I'm not saying that's an illegitimate thing. I'm just saying as, as an observational fact, it is. Um, but I, I also have this ancillary thing about the reason why the sports part of it 
is such is so potent for people. And I think part of it is that starting with Title Nine, the Title Nine stuff 25 years ago, this country spent an enormous amount of time and effort convincing fathers to be just as into their daughters' sports careers as their sons, mm -hmm. which I think is generally a very good thing, right? And I know your dad was really into your basketball playing, but... Um, it absolutely is. I wouldn't say that that was an effort that they made. I think that that happened. It just happened. Yeah, I, I, culturally, yeah. I think it just became a thing yeah. where parents, where dads were encouraged and got into, you know, rooting for their daughters yeah. in soccer and all these, in basketball and all these kinds of things. And now it is like institutionalized as a cultural thing and boys get to compete against girls if they put on a skirt or they call themselves a girl. Yeah. And I think it, I'm not trying to make light of anything, but I'm just saying like, I, it pisses off a lot of, yeah. a lot of people, you know, a lot of soccer moms and a lot of soccer dads are like, wait a second, you know, I've been going to these swim meets for you know, five years on the hope like my kid, my daughter can get into college and she's worked yeah. so hard. And all of a sudden this, this male comes in and says he's a girl and just destroys everybody yeah. and it pisses people off. Yeah. No, I mean, I, for the longest time thought that, that, that conservatives and Republicans overplayed this issue. And I mean, I think they did to some degree, but now I don't, I don't feel that way. I, I thought, for the longest time that boys wouldn't, there wouldn't be enough men that would, well, not pretend to be girls, but call themselves girls and want to play sports. It just culturally would never be acceptable for a man, really. Too many men to do that to make a difference, right? And I think we're seeing, I mean, look, talk to Lucy and stuff about the attitudes on college campuses um, about guys, um, guys being you know, bisexual or transgender and all this stuff. There's, it's, it's very accepted. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just going to get, yeah, more, become more of an issue as time goes on. Um, I don't want to end on such a controversial. I've thing. been just, just a total downer this whole time. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we should talk for a moment about, you know, subject that is of, of grave concern to some, um, some folks out there, particularly on Twitter, is the issue of bear propaganda. You've acquired a reputation as um, sort of the foremost speak truth to power about, speak truth to ursine power. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Here we go. Uh, so, uh, and I, I have to say, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm revealing a little bit from behind the curtain here. I don't think you hate bears. I think you respect bears um, and you do not necessarily, because I, I see, I've seen you around bears at the zoo. <laughs> that was a long time ago. And that it was, that bear was behind bars and clearly had come from the circus because he was holding his feet and sitting on his tush. And what I was trying to give him something to eat. You gave him some apple. Yeah. No, but like. He you, was a circus you, bear. But we saw bears that we've seen bears in Alaska and you like bear, you like looking at them. It's just that you have a, you have a healthy respect for them. Right. I mean, it's like, no, look, Jonah, I will not say how we got there, but we went to basically bear Island in Alaska once. And these creatures were all around us. Grizzly bears or Kodiak. Even no, they were, they were grizzlies. Grizzlies. Definitely. 
And it scared the hell out of me. I, I, you know, you, we saw little cubs literally playing on the seashore and, you know, everyone's like, ooh and ah, and you know, where little cubs are, mama is there and they will kill you and eat your face. So I, I disagree with what you're saying. I think, look, you can, you can make pandas into cuddly things because they, they are, they're ludicrous things. Grizzly bears are killing machines. You know, and everyone in Alaska, you know, respects that. And you have to, you know, lock up and board up your cabin for the winter so they don't get in. And they they, they destroy gallons of fuel trying to get to feed. Um, and, you know, you have to you have to travel with a weapon, which is why I don't like going in national parks in Alaska because they can't, you, you can't travel with a weapon. And I'm not talking about bear spray. I'm talking about a gun. And I remember, you know, being out in the woods in Montana with Zoe when she was young. I was driving her out to, to, um, to Friday Harbor, I think. And I would go on these great, we were like in the, in the Rockies, somewhere near in the Yellowstone-ish I don't know where we were. Anyway, great mountains, beautiful scenery. And I'd go out with her and she was young and just completely uncontrollable practically. So I would let her run and get her yayas out. And I just, I'm just constantly terrified of her bringing a bear back, you know, which does happen, chasing I mean, bear, her, which does happen. Yeah. Dogs chase bears. And then the, the bears realize, wait a second, I'm a bear. Yeah. And they turn around <laughs> and they chase the dogs back and the dogs run right back to, to their owners and then yeah. right past their owners. Yeah. <laughs> and, and all I have stop. is all I have is bear spray. And yeah. so I think it's it's a real menace. And it's part of, you know, advertising in Madison Avenue kind of flim flammery. Um yeah, so li- listeners just there's a long running shtick here, but like shtick. It's not shtick. shtick. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Leap mot- light motif. <laughs> uh when my, our daughter was little. We would watch, car, I would watch cartoons with her and like, you know, like the, the Coca-Cola polar bear commercials would come on or whatever. And anytime a bear was cute and cuddly, um, Jessica would slap the TV and say, bear propaganda, <laughs> they want to eat your face. <laughs> um, and so it's become a thing. Well, 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 we should tell people, like, so you have some, like, you worked for Frank Murkowski. That's how you first came to D.C. Yeah, um, senator from Alaska. Right. Yeah. Father of Father senator from Alaska. Nancy, Father. or Lisa. Um, and uh, um, he basically viewed the National Park Service as a bunch of people who use the parks for their own benefit. That's right. And, you know. Wanted to keep them to themselves. It does feel more like that in Alaska than it does yeah. in other places. Yeah. Right? You know, we were, we went to Denali. Um, we saw the, the restrictions they put on people's access to that park, which are significant. We got, we, you know, there's a bus that goes in there. Mm-hmm. You can't take your car in. You got to ride the bus. How long is that bus ride? It go, the bus goes like 20 miles an hour. Well, to the, to the top, it was like, to the end of it, it was like five hours. Yeah. No, it was yeah. insane. And, um, and it's, a, it's an astounding place, but the, there's a lot of effort given to keeping people out of it. And um, it's, it's just dangerous. It allows for the, 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 the 
the propagation of of lies like the fact that the Anwar, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which has, you know, they've discovered oil in is this beautiful, you know, Eden of dancing caribou, right? And it is a, well, you were up there. Yeah. It's a flat mosquito infested bog. Um, You know, it's just, there's just not this. I believe in conserving, you know, nature. We have, I love going to, to, to national parks and to Yosemite and all that stuff. But this is, this is a lie, you know, to keep oil development out. And so people need to be able to see this stuff. We should be clear. There are really fantastic parks, parts of Anwar. It's just not where the oil yeah, is. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's right. a good point. The oil so is like, on this coastal plain. When I went up there for that NR cover piece, the point I made was that if you watch the nightly news broadcasts at the time, um, which people used to do, they would always set up the cameras so that it's the Brooks Mountain Range in the background. Yes. Right? And they say they want to oil drill for oil here. The problem is the camera was pointing the wrong direction. That's right. right. And if you turn the camera around, it is this vast plain of like peat moss and puddles. Yep. Where there are 10 gazillion mosquitoes and and little else. Yeah. And the entire footprint back then proposed for drilling in Anwar was like the size of Dulles Airport That's in right. Anwar's the size of South Carolina. That's so, right. you know, yeah. Um, and nobody has ever been there, you know, and these Americans that want to rightly preserve these beautiful things thought, believed all that and said, well, no, we can't, you know, we can't have oil development in, in Anwar. And it's, and then you have the park service, you know, keeping people out of these places and making it more difficult. It's, it's unfortunate. All right. So um, I think we are done here. I know I can tell you are incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> You're scoring. No, but I, I would just love to to end on an up note, JG. I just I, I I feel I feel bad about being so terribly cynical this entire broadcast. Well, I will tell you, there's one thing um, that I wanted to insert when we were talking earlier, and we're still rolling here. Um, is uh, when you were talking about talking to your wanting to talk to your dad in those last couple of years, and I was saying I had the same problem with my mom. Yeah. It's a good piece of advice. It's, it's kind of a downer, but it's a good piece of advice, both for older listeners who maybe you need to take the first step and talk to your kid or your grandkid about yeah. uh, writing some of this stuff down or recording it. And if you're, or the kids or grandkids out there, um, do it early because by the time you feel the need to, to sort of memorialize stuff, it may be too late to memorialize yeah. it. Like I got a lot of people who wanted, and my mom was willing to come on the podcast, but you know, she was, um, and in the first couple of years, it was just sort of like, I was a little squirmy about it and trying to figure out the, the technical logistics of it and that kind of thing. And, and then we'd get to the place where she'd have perfectly lucid, yeah. good periods and then not have yeah. perfectly lucid good periods. And it's very difficult to schedule those, you know, 10 yes, days out. Exactly. And so I was, you know, and the last thing I wanted to do was embarrass her um, by saying, Hey, we can't use this or any of that kind of stuff or asking her questions that she couldn't remember or whatever. And, um, and that's for a podcast, but like, you know, if you want to get these stories, um, Get them early. That's right. They get away from you. And it, and it's been wonderful to see Lucy 
want to know more about her grandmother and kind of understand more and more. Um, you know, she knew the person, but the kind of personality um, and public figure she was. And it's, it's wonderful to see her be that inquisitive and, um, you know, the right people need to tell your mom's story too. Right. And I yeah, have well, to do that for happen. my dad. But, um, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, do you have any, um, like, uh, like great uplifting, positive <laughs> advice for young women starting their careers in Washington? Just, um, I, you know, Sarah's pretty good at that stuff. Yeah. Um, no, but, she uh, is. She is. I, my, my road has been so meandering. I am no, I am no model for anything. There are a couple things I learned in Washington. Okay. First is to take credit for stuff that people try to give you credit for, even if you didn't do it, because you won't get credit for the things that you did do. And I, I used to like protest when I was young. Oh, I didn't do that. It was so-and-so. And and it was stupid. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and also just to kind of take some time to learn, you know, learn what it is you want to do. If you want to write, you got to start at a place where, you know, I mean, you are this exception. Um, this man that I found in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, you were this brilliant <laughs> writer. But most people, you know, you got to put in some time and, and, um, and get to know your craft and get to know the players and you should be, you should believe in the people that you work for. I'm talking as a, as a staffer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't have any really good advice. But. All right. Well, um, I've, I've, I keep passing you the ball to like say something, you know, well, that, <laughs> I, I started out, well, you know, look, I started out answering phones on Capitol Hill, like, so many girls did back in the day. Um, and I, you know, I've done, I've done, I think I've done okay. And, and we're very, very blessed. The two of us, first of all, I think that we found each other. Cause what did your dad used to say, you know, about the chances of a girl from Alaska meeting a guy from the, Oh, that was, at my that was at the rehearsal dinner where my dad said, there's such a weird way to open. Like he was too shy to stand up for his toast. Right. Remember? And so he just <laughs> sat there sort of looking at his hands and he said, uh, Jonah always liked quest movies. Um, which is not like the first description of me that I would come to mind, but okay. And he was like, if you had, if he had set out to find a Slovakian girl from Fairbanks, Alaska, he never could have. <laughs> Um, it's the only thing that can happen by accident. Yeah. And, and I think there's some truth yeah. to that. It was a happy accident. And I, um, I enjoy, uh, actually every time I come on here, I don't want to, and I always enjoy it. So thank you, JG and Merry Christmas to everyone. And happy Hanukkah. And happy Hanukkah. All right. So, um, uh, my wife has left. Oh, no, there she is. <laughs> uh, my wife has sort of left the studio. She, I mean, studio, what studio? She was recording this from her office upstairs and I'm in my office downstairs at our house. She does feel bad about being such a downer. Um, I don't think it was as downer as she thinks it was, but um, uh, we'll, we'll leave it to you guys to decide. Just some cleanup stuff uh, that newer listeners may not be aware of. Or didn't understand um, the the 
line about her getting uh, her husband through the Wall Street Journal. Um, that's because, li- and so a lot of listeners have heard the story before, um, but it's my, how I met my wife story. And um, uh, I had written a piece for the, when I was in working in the AI building uh, in the old days, in the old AI building, as a, then as a TV producer, but still sort of in the AI world, I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal, oddly enough, again, about um, the new conservative fad, again, about cigars was sort of ridiculous. And um, there was this whole movement among young conservatives to create their own conservative counterculture. Um, um, there's something similar going on these days. There's always something like this thing going on. Um, anyway, I, I wrote a piece sort of making fun of it. Um, and, uh, it was a funny piece. It wasn't like super serious. And, uh, it was ran in the wall street journal and, uh, Jessica, who was then an editor for philanthropy magazine on the fifth floor of the AI building, which was the same floor as the weekly standard guys, um, um, read it and liked it and said to a mutual friend, this guy, Ken Weinstein, who's now the president of the Hudson Institute. Um, this piece is great. Who is this guy? And he says, Oh, I know that guy, Jonah Goldberg. I know that guy. And cause he was really close friends with Tevi and yada, yada, yada. So, uh, fast forward to one of these, uh, parties they used to do these right wing parties called no left turns parties. Um, and I was there, um, and, uh, and Jessica was there and Ken Weinstein introduced us. And I was immediately smitten, even though I was dating somebody, it was dating somebody at the time. And, um, and I instantly recognized her as the hot girl from the elevator. And, um, she immediately did not recognize me as random dude from the elevator number 37. And, um, uh, but I was, again, I was dating somebody. She seemed sort of, you know, um, she didn't seem like she was making a romantic overture. She just wanted to talk and we talked and we had a good time talking. And, um, the next day word got back to Ken that, um, uh, I really liked Jessica and thought she was great. And Ken Weinstein, um, called me and Ken had never called me and has never called me since. Um, and it was a very weird thing for him to call. And, and Jess had been, was dating somebody of much greater, much greater prominence uh, than your, your humble podcast host was. And, um, and Ken called me and said, Hey Jonah, how's it going? Blah, 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 blah. And we made small talk and I was like really wondering what the call was about. And, uh, and then he says, Hey, I hear, I hear you really like, like Jessica. And I was like, yeah, I think she's great. And, uh, and then Ken says, yeah, well, you should just know she's way out of your league. And, um, I was so pissed off and I, I, full disclosure, just to be clear, Ken denies all of this and he's wrong. Um, and, uh, but he denies it all. So it's a, he said, he said kind of situation, but, uh, I was so offended and had my, and felt so, uh, um, uh, well offended that, uh, it probably was, um, one of the main reasons I made it a quest to woo the fair Jessica. (laughs) And, um, so it was really him throwing down that gauntlet that got the ball rolling. And it still took several years of wooing to woo the fair Jessica. And with that, uh, I should just close by saying I am, I will, I will 
report back as much as I can through the fog of whatever hangover I have. But uh, today is the annual holidays, D-A-Z-E party, which I should have talked about with, not party, uh, lunch, uh, which I should have talked about with Jess. This is where my oldest friends from Washington, we get together. It's all these guys I work with as television producer and a couple other people. We get together once a year and, um, um, and eat and drink irresponsibly um, and tell old stories and whatnot. And um, I'm leaving shortly for that. The nice thing is, as we get older, our decision trees go less, less awry. The likelihood of us waking up in hotel rooms in Atlantic City has decreased, though I can't quite rule it out. So I'm looking forward to that. And, um, uh, and I want to thank, uh, the fair Jessica for coming on. And again, if you have any family connections, historical knowledge, mementos, records, whatever, um, leads that could be of use to, to Jess, um, in the project about her book, about her dad, please send my way, Jonah at the dispatch.com. That would be great. And, um, it's nice to be back. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Um, rockin' Kwanzaa, if that's your bag. And, um, I'll see you next time. <laughs> no, you won't. This is a podcast. That was good. I feel like you meant it. Yeah.